Welcome to Russian History Retold, episode number 232, 1917, part 5. Last time, we made it to the end of August of the incredible year of 1917. Today, we will finish the year with the Bolsheviks coming to power. Our old friend Florence Harper gave this assessment about the Kornilov affair, which we talked about in the last episode, one which many in the diplomatic corps agreed with. Quote, I was filled with blind rage. We all knew it was the last chance the Bolsheviki were armed. The Red Guard was formed. The split was definite. Kerensky was doomed. Having seen Kornilov as the last chance for peace in Russia, many foreign nationals decided to leave the country. Plans to evacuate all diplomatic embassies were being put into place. The Americans had a steamship in the ready. Important documents were moved by rail to Moscow to avoid having the Germans reach the capital. Many foreign nationals who built businesses, raised families, and built lavish homes in Petrograd left with what they could carry, leaving treasures behind. This is about the time when my grandparents decided it was time to hightail it out of Petrograd. Many sold anything and everything they had to raise enough money to live outside Russia. My grandparents decided to move to Belgrade, Serbia. They were lucky as they were able to carry much of their wealth with them. They would lose their fortune, though, when the Nazis took over during World War II. It was supposedly common knowledge throughout Petrograd that they had it worse than the rest of Russia. But this was not true. As Pauline Crosley, wife of a U.S. naval attaché, said, quote, For we hear of nothing but disorders all over Russia, and I can learn of no locality that is really safe. By September, things were getting really dangerous for anyone with money or part of the government. Florence Harper had by now enough of Petrograd. She was, quote, so fed up with Russia and black bread and machine guns and riots and murder and discord that she had, quote, shaken the mud of Petrograd from her shoes with more pleasure than she realized. At this time, the British sent in a new spy, an English writer, to gather information about the goings-on at Petrograd. His name was Somerset Maugham. The daughter of the noted Russian revolutionary Peter Kropotkin, Alexandra, introduced Mom to Kerensky. Another famous couple would arrive in the capital as well. The noted journalist and avowed socialist John Reed with his wife Louise Bryant. John Reed's writing on the coming October Revolution would tell the world of the startling events that were about to unfold. Reed had knowledge of revolution. He had embedded himself into the camp of the Mexican bandit-slash-revolutionary Pancho Villa. The real problem he faced when he entered Petrograd in September 1917 was that he knew little to no Russian. Reed really knew no one in the city, but he was bound and determined that, as Rappaport puts it in her book Caught in the Revolution, quote, Together the like-minded Reed, Beatty, and Reese Williams joined forces to tell Russia's story from their own committed socialist perspective as partisans and Tavarischi, determined to feel its strength unshackled and hopefully bear witness to the dawn of a new world. 
What many of the newly arrived journalists found was a city that was heaped in hypocrisy. There were long lines for food, yet you could catch a performance of Prince Igor or Boris Gudunov. All the local cafes had weak tea and meek sandwiches, but they were full all the time. You could watch American movies at the local movie theater, but you had to participate in air raid drills due to the fear of attack by the Germans. Some even went as far as to hope that the Germans might take the city, hoping they could do better than the provisional government. On September 1st, a nine-day Democratic Congress convened to set up a process for a Democratic government to be voted into by a constituent assembly. Around 1,600 delegates showed up, but little was expected. The Bolsheviks were rattling their swords, interrupting speakers, and generally rabble-rousing whenever possible. The British journalist Arthur Ransom was sure that the Bolsheviks were planning to seize control. Kerensky was exhausted, as were the rest of the provisional government. The Bolsheviks were going to take advantage of this enthusiasm gap. As Rappaport puts it, quote, An extremely hostile Bolshevik response to all conciliatory gestures had prevailed, culminating in a mass walkout, allowing a resolution for Kerensky to form a pre-parliament prior to the election of a constituent assembly to be passed by a small minority. Many have asked, how could a small party like the Bolsheviks have become so powerful and disruptive? They were vastly outnumbered on the left by the Mensheviks and Social Revolutionary Party and by the cadets and other right-wing groups on the other side. Sir George Buchanan had said this about them, quote, The Bolsheviks, who form a compact minority, have alone a definite political program. They are more active and better organized than any other group, and until they and the ideas that they represent are finally squashed, the country will remain a prey to anarchy and disorder. If the government is not strong enough to put down the Bolsheviks by force, at the risk of breaking altogether with the Soviet, the only alternative will be a Bolshevik government. To make matters worse, the weather began to change for the worse. Not only were the inhabitants hungry, but they were also now faced with the coming Russian winter. The streets were dangerous, not just for those who looked well off, but for anyone roaming the streets. As Arthur Reinke wrote, quote, Women had their shoes taken from their feet. Men had their clothes removed in the street. Three men entered a fur store opposite the hotel. One began to pack up some valuable furs that he had not paid for. The owner called for help, which brought an angry mob. The three men were quickly surrounded by the mob and beaten to death. It afterwards developed that two were innocent customers. A friend of mine had his necktie pin removed on the Nevsky in broad daylight by a soldier. His mother had her leather bag taken from her lap while seated in a streetcar by a soldier. The latter turned at the door, playfully threatening her with his finger, as one might a child, and jumped off. A guest from our hotel disappeared, and his body was found a week later in the river, minus a large sum of money he was known to have carried. All over Russia, trains carrying grain and foodstuffs were being halted by bandits and robbed of their contents. 
Riots of peasants taking revenge against wealthy landholders were commonplace. Chaos reigned supreme. There was little to no leadership in Russia, except a fiery speaker named Leon Trotsky. Lenin was too scared to leave Finland, so the face of the Revolutionary Party would be Trotsky. On September 12th, he was elected chair of the powerful Petrograd Soviet. Leighton Rogers, a member of the U.S. military intelligence crew in Petrograd, said this about the Bolshevik. Quote, This man Trotsky is the king of agitators. He could stir up trouble in a cemetery. Rogers went further to say this. He has a large following and is dangerous. These people are easily mesmerized by talk. Trotsky was spreading his inflammatory message all over Petrograd, arguing that the Russian people could not save the revolution all the time they were still fighting in the war. They needed peace in order to be and to make war on the bourgeoisie. Kerensky, by the end of September, was a broken man. Somerset Maugham thought that Kerensky was, quote, more afraid of doing the wrong thing than anxious to do the right one. And so he did nothing until he was forced into action by others. Now that we're moving into uh, October, what was the rest of the world doing in October of 1917? The Battle of Brudsind was fought with tremendous loss of life. It is estimated that the Allies suffered 20,000 casualties, while the Germans lost 35,000 men. Eight days later, the First Battle of Passchendaele was fought with a loss of 13,000 men on each side. The, these two battles were part of the Third Battle of Ypres. Dutch dancer and spy Matahari was executed by firing squad outside Paris. And then in the United States, Dallas Love Field Airport opened. In Petrograd, the situation was becoming dire for the inhabitants. There was little to no order or food to be found. As the newly appointed Belgium ambassador, Jules Destrie, described in the city, quote, In this late autumn time, Petrograd is a revolting cesspool. Liquid, sticky mud covers the carriageway and the causeways. It is splashed up into the windows of the lower stories of buildings and spread over the ruts in the road, squirting treacherously underfoot, making stepping onto loose cobblestones risky. I've never seen anything as horrible, except in certain muddy streets in Constantinople. The locals smile at my squeamishness as they flounder around in this quagmire with the customary resignation. It is one of the evils of war. There are others, much worse. In days of old, the railroads were fine and well-maintained, but the army has commandeered all manpower, and filth has got the better of the defenseless capital. As you can imagine, life in Petrograd was pretty miserable in October of 1917. Just think, though, 24 years later, in 1941, the German army would lay siege to the city for two years and four months to add to the misery and heartache the citizens of the city would have to endure. Vladimir Lenin had returned to Petrograd on October 10th, disguised so as to avoid arrest. A meeting of the 12 members of the Bolshevik Central Committee was held. The intent 
was to vote on whether to initiate a revolution to take control of the government from the provisional government or not. The vote was 10 to 2, with Lev Kamenev and Grigory Zinoviev voting against it. This vote would bode poorly for Kamenev and Zinoviev when Stalin seized power. It was, by now, an open secret that the Bolsheviks were planning an uprising. The problem was, they had made these pronouncements since July, with little action visible. Trotsky had been doing most of the planning, with Lenin, of course, being out of the country. As John Lewis Fuller remembered, quote, Every time they have advertised their intentions so widely, nothing ever happens. He did note that there was a different atmosphere in the air, and admitted, quote, Trouble is going to come sometime with very little noise, and then it will be real trouble. Day after day from October 20th to the 24th, tensions in the city grew. No one knew what was happening. All they knew was that something was about to occur. Then, on October 25th, all hell would break loose. The powder kegs the city had been sitting on for months was about to blow the provisional government up. The Bolsheviks were doing their part to stir the masses up. A great majority of the regular people in the city were hoping for something to happen. Anything. There was hope that maybe the Bolsheviks could stop the misery. At the very least, they believed that they would end Russia's role in the war. Leighton Rogers, a bank clerk who later became an intelligence officer, wrote this about waking up on October 25th. Quote, They've begun it. They're at it now as I write. Machine guns and rifles are snarling and barking all over the city. Sounds like a huge corn popper. And we picked this afternoon to move. Bridges were being raised to prevent people from getting to the city center. But the Troitsky Bridge was open. And Rogers, along with his friend Fred Sykes, was trying to make it to their new apartment near the British consulate. They barely made it up to their new place when, quote, Civil warfare erupted in all parts of the city. Machine guns ripped, and they were at it again. If you listen to the official Bolshevik line, there was brave fighting on the streets along with a showdown with the provisional government. But that's really not true. In reality, the overthrow of the government was really nothing to write home about. As Rappaport put it in her book, Caught in the Revolution, quote, after months of alarms and predictions, the expected Bolshevik coup in Petrograd, when it came, was not the heroic workers' showdown of Soviet histography, but more an exhausted capitulation of Kerensky's morbid and virtually defenseless government. As British Embassy Councillor Francis Lindley put it, quote, This morning we woke up to find the town in the hands of the Bolsheviks. I'm glad to say there is nothing of that infernal careering about and shooting in the air at present. The provisional government seemed to have just disappeared, and we don't know where. The government had ordered Trotsky and members of the Military Revolutionary Committee to be arrested, but no one with any kind of firepower to pull it off stepped up. Indeed, the Bolsheviks were 50,000 strong, many with weapons. Those guarding the Winter Palace, where the provisional government was seated, included 135 women 
from the Petrograd Women's Battalion. All totaled somewhere around 800 troops were guarding the palace. Some of the women that were part of Maria Bochkareva's death battalion, while a tough and anti-Bolshevik group, they had no interest in protecting Kerensky's government. Bochkareva herself would be arrested by the Bolsheviks in 1919, subsequently shot on May 16, 1920. The myth of the storming of the Winter Palace began not with the Bolsheviks, but with the American John Reed. He described a more dramatic version in his book, Ten Days That Shook the World, which would become legendary. It served as a basis of the 1928 film by Sergei Eisenstein, named October. The movie was commissioned by the Bolsheviks and was initially met with disdain. Stalin even had Eisenstein edit the film in order to remove any mention of Leon Trotsky. While many focused on the events going on in the Winter Palace, it was at the Smolny Institute where all the action was. It was the main headquarters of the Bolsheviks. The Petrograd Soviet was, as Rappaport puts it, quote, in constant belligerent session. Also, it must be noted before we go too far that the Bolsheviks themselves were only part of the groups that overturned the government. The Mensheviks and Social Revolutionary Party being far more involved, while the latter taking the lead. Lenin only emerged from hiding on the night of the 24th. Lenin was able to take control of the movement, though, especially with the defection of 8,000 troops belonging to the Petrograd garrison. Roadblocks were put into place around the city by the Red Guards, led by Leon Trotsky. On the night of the overthrow, Kerensky tried to flee in government cars outside the Winter Palace, but all of them had been sabotaged. He was whisked away by a car from the American embassy to take him to Piskov, where there were still some troops loyal to him. By 2.45 a.m. on the morning of October 26th, the revolution was over. All that was left was to search the building for any members of the provisional government. Some ministers were not as lucky as Kerensky. Many were captured, placed into the Peter and Paul Fortress, and eventually many were executed. As the American journalist Bessie Betty wrote about the capture of some of the ministers, quote, Some of them walked with a defiant step and heads held high. Others were pale, worn, and anxious. One or two seemed utterly crushed and broken. While some tried to loot the Winter Palace, the senior Bolsheviks on hand tried to shame those stealing things. As Reese Williams, another of the Americans in Petrograd, remembered, one soldier said to the looters, quote, Comrades, this is the people's palace. This is our palace. Do not steal from the people. All in all, the overthrow of the provisional government was pretty quiet. There was one exception. At 9.45 p.m., the cruiser Aurora fired a, fired a blank shot from the harbor towards the Winter Palace. This scared many of the defenders, some of whom were young cadets, a few of the women's battalion, and most of the Cossacks left. In all, only seven people guarding the palace were killed. Two cadets, four sailors, one female soldier. Fifty were wounded. 
As Walter Crosley, a naval attaché, would write, quote, I've never before seen a revolution in which the government put out of office has been defended by armed women and children alone. On the morning of the 26th, the citizens of Petrograd woke to a new world. Crowds began to make their way to the Winter Palace to assess the damage caused by the night's battles. Pauline Crosby, Walter's wife, recalls, quote, We walked around the Winter Palace and saw the marks of the fray, but in spite of all the firing we heard and the flashes of guns we saw, as well as the short distances concerned, we could only see two places where anything larger than a rifle bullet had hit that perfectly enormous building. But things were different inside. As Rappaport so vividly tells us, quote, Inside the Winter Palace it was a different story. Damage from the occupation by the cadets and the women's battalion and the subsequent takeover by the Bolsheviks was visible everywhere. Hundreds of muddy footprints had soiled the elegant parquet floors. Silk hangings had been torn down and were now being used as bedding. But strangely enough, recalled Julia Katazun Speransky, the rebel had passed by furniture, paintings, porcelains, and bronzes of great value, and even looked uncomprehendingly at the vitrine full of ancient Greek jewelry wrought in pure gold. Although they hustled from one another to cut leather coverings off seats of modern chairs and anterooms and the emperor's sitting room to make patch boots and to knock down gilded plaster from the walls. Sure, it must be real gold. The great Malachite Hall was smashed beyond repair, and infinite damage was done to some of the apartments of ceremony. We are now in November, with the Bolsheviks in control, but in a very precarious way. How they would gain control of the government would be explained by sheer luck, but with rugged determination and focused leadership. They would not achieve complete control until after the Russian Civil War ended in 1923. In the rest of the world in the month of November, the Second Battle of Passchendaele ended with Canadian forces taking the town after three months of fighting. Finland declares its independence from the Russian Empire. George Clemenceau became Prime Minister of France, and the National Hockey League was formed in Montreal, Canada. The Bolsheviks were in control of most of the major cities within Russia, especially Petrograd. The opposition to them was in disarray and scattered. Their support in the countryside, though, was mixed. In Moscow, there was fierce fighting between the Bolsheviks and anti-Bolsheviks. Over 700 people were killed in the battles throughout the city. But by the beginning of November, Moscow was in the hands of the Red Guard. With the two largest cities in Russia under their control, the Bolsheviks felt that they would have little trouble gaining seats in the new Constituent Assembly that was to be held uh, on November 12th. They should not have been that confident. At the Constituent Assembly, only 175 out of 715 seats went to the Bolsheviks. It was second to the Socialist Revolutionary Party, which gained 370 seats. The SR party, though, had been split up into a left and right wing. The left SR had decided to join with the Bolsheviks, while the right SR would side with the whites during the Russian Civil War. 
The left SR would remain tied to the Bolsheviks until March 1918, leaving in protest to the signing of the Peace Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. The right socialist revolutionaries would be marginalized by the anti-socialist whites. They would be forced to leave Russia, maintaining a belief that they were the legitimate government until they disbanded in 1940. The Constituent Assembly was to meet for a second time on November 28th, but that was put on hold by the now scheming Bolsheviks. They planned to have a meeting on January 5th, 1918, but by then the Soviets, with the Bolsheviks backing, used their people power to dissolve the Assembly. We are now in the final month of 1917, where the Bolsheviks began to change things in the country. Before we get to that, let's see what the rest of the world is up to. Two freighters collide in Halifax Harbor at Halifax, Nova Scotia, causing a massive explosion that kills 1,963 people, injures 9,000, and destroys part of the city. And this was the biggest man-made explosion in recorded history until the Trinity nuclear test in 1945. The British Expeditionary Force enters Jerusalem, effectively ending Ottoman rule. And President Woodrow Wilson orders the federal government of the U.S. to take over operations of the railroad system in order to transport troops more efficiently for the war effort. Early on in December, the Bolsheviks decided to remove the use of ranks in the military, along with the need to salute each other. All titles and uniform decorations were removed as well. Then, in the prelude of the coming war and the Red Terror that would start in September 1918, the feared secret police, the Cheka, was formed. A decree of the land was published, allowing the peasants to take private land and distribute it amongst themselves. As we now know, that would be reversed under Stalin, with many of the new landowners called kulaks, who would be heavily persecuted. The following were some of the significant decrees announced. All private property was nationalized by the government. All Russian banks were nationalized. The private banks' accounts were confiscated. The properties of the Russian Orthodox Church, including bank accounts, were confiscated. All foreign debts were repudiated. Control of the factories was given to the Soviets. Wages were fixed at higher rates than during the war, and a shorter eight-hour working day was introduced. By the end of the year, all major and many smaller cities in western Russia had been taken by the Red Army and the Bolsheviks. The Whites decided to head both east and south, gathering their strengths. Ukraine seized the opportunity to finally break away from Russia, but that would fail in 1918. We have now come to the end of our tour of the year 1917. It began with Nicholas II teetering on the throne. It saw two revolutions and three governments, two overthrown. The end saw the rise to power of the Bolsheviks led by Lenin and Trotsky. Ominous clouds of civil war loomed in the near future. Millions would die. The Red Terror would begin in September of 1918 after the failed assassination attempt of Lenin. And then... In 1991, some 74 years after the October Revolution, the Communist Party's control of the Soviet Union would come to an inglorious end. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time as I share an interview I did with William Clark, 
host of the Great Histories podcast about Catherine the Great. So, until next time, das vidanya y spasiba bolshoya.